You'll turn with me to uh, Proverbs chapter 15, uh, verse 1. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. The God-given ability <clears throat> to form syllables and words with our tongue is a most precious gift indeed. Unless we actually slow down and realize how much of our life revolves around our ability to express our thoughts with our tongue, to express our desires, to communicate with one another with our tongue, we are likely to continue in a thankless mode and attitude for this undeserved mercy of God. For consider that there are no doubt millions of people around the world who cannot hear, nor can they speak, they're deaf or mute, or both, due to various disorders that they have. They must communicate by sign language, or by the written word in order to communicate with one another. But dear ones, we who enjoy the capacity and have been blessed with this uh, most gracious and wondrous gift of God, of communication, of speech, to use for His glory and for the profit of others, how are we using this amazing gift? How are we using this amazing gift? You'll recall when Moses had been called by God to speak with his mouth a message of deliverance unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt. <clears throat> he gave various excuses as to why he could not go to Pharaoh. And you'll recall him saying, O oh my Lord, this is in Exodus 4.10, O oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. You know, Moses said, in effect, I'm not an eloquent orator. I'm not one who can wow the crowds with uh, my oratorical skills. But the Lord reminds Moses that he, the Lord God Almighty, is the one who gives to all people the ability or the inability to speak. As he says in the following verse, in Exodus 4.11, where the Lord said unto Moses, Who hath made man's mouth or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind have not I the Lord so, for, so both the ability to speak and the ability to see and the ability to hear or the inability of those things comes by way of God's appointment 
The fact that you have those gifts and abilities is a merciful and gracious gift to you. Have you thought to give God praise and thanksgiving recently for that gift of communication and speech in your life? If not, it is neglect in our parts, for it's the most gracious gift that many do not have. Today would be a very good time to do so, to give thanks to the Lord as we consider this wondrous gift of speech and how we're to use it for God's glory and for the profit of others. Dear ones, as the eyes are said to be the mirror of the soul, so is the tongue said to be the interpreter of the soul. If there is godliness or ungodliness in the heart, it will be known and discovered by the tongue. If there is a love of Christ, a love of one's neighbor, a love of holiness, a love of God's truth, in the soul of a man, it will be found upon the tongue of that man or that woman or that child. Or likewise, if there is a love of greed, a love of pride, a love of lust, a cherishing of a grudge, an embracing of retaliation against others, or a nursing of a lie within our hearts, that too the tongue will discover and make known. For as the Lord Jesus so truly taught us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. That which is in the heart cannot be long buried within the heart, but does bubble up eventually into our speech, which we communicate one to another. So if you sit around and get to know one another long enough, you get to know, at least from a, from a perspective of man's evaluation, you get to know fairly well what is within a person's heart. You see, dear ones, if you want to know what is truly important to a person, what's really the most important of matters in their heart and in their life, in the very depth of their soul, simply listen to what that person talks most about. The very depths of a man's soul are revealed by a man's tongue, a woman's tongue, a child's tongue. So, what is your tongue telling others about you as to what is most important in your life? The latest movie or song? Not that it's wrong to talk about the latest movie or song. But if that's all that we talk about, if that's what's most important, that's what's going to be a part of our speech most often. Or is it uh, your hobby or your entertainment, your car, your home, the health of your body? Or is it the health of your soul or the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of Christ? By your speech, dear ones, will be revealed to others what is most important to you. What matters the most? 
what you are willing even to lay down your life for and to sacrifice in this world for by way of your speech. For you can rest assured, dear ones, that your speech is definitely telling everybody around you something. One way or the other. It's saying something. The only question is, what is your speech telling others about you? For the tongue is the interpreter of the soul. The main points of the sermon this Lord's Day are as follows. First of all, our tongue may be used to diffuse anger. Proverbs 15.1a And the second main point, our tongue may be used to provoke anger. In Proverbs 15.1b Let's consider then the first main point. Our tongue may be used to, defer, to diffuse anger. Notice again in Proverbs 15.1a A soft answer turneth away wrath. Dear ones, let us first realize that these inspired words from King Solomon are not mere advice. It's not simply a suggestion that Solomon offers to us. It's not simply an option, one option amongst many. We need to understand that death and life hinge upon the use of our tongue. This is a command this is an imperative that God gives to us that is implied here. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Therefore, use your tongue to turn away wrath. That's the implication. It's a command that is implied here, not a mere suggestion. Solomon likewise makes clear in Proverbs 18.21 that quote, death and life are in the power of the tongue, end of quote. You remember the Lord Jesus also said that if every idle word would be brought before God in judgment. Every idle word, not simply words that we utter that are that are in and of themselves sinful, but every idle word, every word uh, that's uh, simply uh, not profitable, uh, not beneficial to others, um, would be brought before God in judgment. Now, again, that's not to say that even laughter, joking, cannot be profitable. A merry heart, I'm not saying, cannot be profitable to others. But we have to be aware again of the seriousness of our tongue and how we use our speech and pray diligently that God would make us those whose speech is edifying and profitable to people and glorifying chiefly to God himself brings him glory that he rejoices himself in the use of our speech and our language and our communication with one another, beginning in our homes with those who are closest to us, beginning with husbands and wives and how we communicate one to another, 
beginning with how we as parents communicate with our children and how children communicate with their parents and how brothers communicate with sisters within the family and sisters communicate with brothers and how we communicate within the church of Jesus Christ. Elders to members and members to elders and members to one another and how we communicate with those at work, at school. Profit, benefit, not foolishness, not idleness. Profit and benefit. Though a very small member of the body, the tongue may be used to edify or to destroy, to bless or to curse, James says in James chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. Dear ones, our tongue may be used to praise God or to curse God, to pour forth refreshing kindness toward our neighbor or venomous anger. It may be used to protect one's character or to assassinate one's character. It may be used to teach what is true or to teach what is false. Death and life are indeed in the power of the tongue. Let us therefore listen carefully to the words of wisdom found in the scripture as it pertains to this particular text. The first line of Proverbs 15.1 tells us that a soft or gentle response will generally have the effect of turning back the anger in others so that anger does, does an about face rather than an in your face. A gentle response tends more to disarm the aggressor. It tends to suffocate the anger so that it cannot breathe out its fiery threats. Where it is very difficult, dear ones, to fight with someone who does not fight back with the same vengeful and venomous anger, with the same loud yelling and shouting and screaming but who lowers his or her voice and seeks to exercise self-control is more difficult in such a situation for someone who is very angry to fight with someone who basically won't fight, who doesn't want to fight. In fact, a soft answer, I would suggest is a greater shock to the system of an aggressor than a glass of cold water in the face many times. You've heard the expression that, uh, that uh, uh, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Um, in other words, the power of a well-spoken and gentle word can knock somebody over with a feather. It has that effect. By God's grace, it can have that effect in their lives. If we pray, if we diligently seek God's mercy and grace to use our speech to glorify God and benefit others. Consider some of the biblical examples of soft answers subduing mighty Goliaths of anger with a smooth stone of kindness. The last time that Jacob had seen his brother Esau Esau wanted to kill him 
for having taken the birthright by way of deception. But now some 21 years have passed, and as Jacob leaves Laban and is about to meet his brother on the road, Jacob approaches nearer and nearer to Esau, and he doesn't defend himself with haughty words. He does not uh, show anger, saying, Esau, what do you have? All of these uh, hundreds of servants behind you or with you, are they men of war? Have you come to me with a spear in your hand to slay me? Uh, do we have to defend ourselves? He did not take uh, that type of defensive posture or aggressive posture with, Jake, uh, with Esau. But rather, in, as we read in Genesis chapter 32, we see the posture that he took with Esau. Genesis 32:17, which was a way of disarming Esau. Genesis 32, verses 17 and 18. And he, that is Jacob, commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau my brother meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou, and whither goest thou, and whose are these before thee? Then thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. Thy servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my Lord Esau when you find him. And then we see the response that Esau had to this particular manner in which Jacob approached him in Genesis 33, 4. And Esau ran to meet him, that is, ran to meet Jacob, and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. See, a gentle, a soft word turns away wrath. Likewise, we see the words of David to King Saul. King Saul had been pursuing David seeking to slay David out of jealousy. Vindictiveness, anger had overcome him. To such an extent, he threw the spear and sought to slay David. And when his son, own son Jonathan defended David, even threw the spear at his own son. He was filled with rage and jealousy and pursued David relentlessly. But we find in 1 Samuel chapter 24 after David had hidden in a cave and could have slain Saul if he wanted to he calls out to Saul in 1 Samuel 24 verse 8 David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul saying my lord the king And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave. 
and some bade me kill thee, but mine eye spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, that term, my father, calls Saul, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand. He had married uh, Saul's daughter, and so in a very real sense, it was his father, father father-in-law, but yet he appeals to him as his father. See, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou, and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. And then we see again the response of Saul to David. In verses 16 through 17, And it came to pass, when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. Or remember how the the words of Abigail turned away the vengeful anger of David who was risen up in in anger against Abigail's husband Nabal and you'll find that again in 1 Samuel 25 uh, if you care to look there the one who turns away the wrath of others by a gentle response dear ones ought not to be viewed here as a weak and cowardly person who simply becomes the doormat upon whom everyone wipes their dirty feet. To the contrary, here is one in whom true strength resides. It is easy, dear ones, simply to allow our emotions to rule over us in biting back with the same angry venom that was hurled at us. It is within, dear ones, our corrupt nature to do so. That's the natural thing to do. When somebody reviles us, to revile in the same tone and in the same tenor and the same words as were given to us. But I say to you, where's the strength of character or the fruit of the Spirit in that kind of response, and simply doing that which is according to our own sinful nature. That's simply going along with the current. It's not fighting against the current. It's simply being drawn like a piece of wood going down a a, a river in the direction that the, the current is taking one. That is simply fulfilling, dear ones, when we do so. Simply fulfilling the lust of the flesh. However, when one can harness by God's grace his emotions, by pleading with God to restrain that angry tongue and rather offer a gentle answer with the intention of diffusing the short-fused bomb that is ready to explode 
such a one is actually demonstrating a tongue that is under under the powerful control of the Holy Spirit of God. That, dear ones, is the grace of self-control and dis- discipline or temperance that's spoken of in Galatians 5.22. A tongue that lashes back like a whip is out of control. But a tongue that is seasoned with grace is in control and under the control of the Holy Spirit. What about your tongue, dear ones? Is it out of control or under the control of the Spirit? I would submit to you, dear ones, that the sin that prevents us from even desiring, let alone offering, a soft answer is our pride. Is our pride. Our arrogance. Our conceit. Which has been offended by the way one has angrily spoken to us. How dare he or she talk to me with such angry and painful words. And so our pride seeks its pound of flesh. A vindictive war of words, whether with a tongue or with a pen or with a keyboard, then ensues with painful words suffered by all who witness it. Not only by those who are involved, but by all those who witness it. However, dear ones, if we would but subdue the pride that is the cause of those angry words and speaking out vindictively against others, if we would but subdue by God's grace the pride by looking to the death of Jesus Christ where our pride was legally nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. We were crucified with him. Our sins were crucified with him. We are legally dead and that pride is legally dead. We have no obligation, therefore. We have no debt to pride or obligation to pride to allow its manifestation in our life. It comes from the corrupt nature that we yet have. True. But God has given us the grace by telling us that pride was nailed to the cross so that we will look to Jesus to see that which is legally true of us manifested more and more and more in our lives. Sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under the law. You're not under the covenant of works which cannot give to you the grace you need. It simply tells you, do this or die. You're not under the covenant of works, but you are under grace. You're under the covenant of grace where there is strength, where there is grace, where there is power to overcome and to be victors over these particular sins in our life. You're not in a hopeless state as one who is trusting in Christ alone for eternal salvation. He has already redeemed you from the curse of the law, from bondage and dominion to that sin. This is simply what is in the Bible called 
putting off the old man and putting on the new man by faith in Christ. And rather, diffusing those short fuses of others and allowing Christ to tame our tongue and make it an instrument of healing rather than a weapon of mass destruction. And this can only be done, as I've said, as we look to Christ in the covenant of grace for the strength to apply, the strength we need to control our speech. There is no grace to overcome such sinful use of our tongue in the covenant of words, as we said. If we give way to a sinful anger when we are reviled, we acknowledge that we are not trusting at that moment in time. We're not trusting in the Lord, but rather trusting in our own strength and in our own resources to get the job done. Whenever we do that, you can almost guarantee it, even as Christians, whenever we fall into that trap, we are doomed to failure. We're doomed to fail in in that particular instance. Even though, dear ones, the devil may deceive us into believing our attempts to reform our tongue by our own efforts, by our own resources, by the arm of flesh, by our mere uh, human resolutions that we make, apart from Christ and apart from the covenant of grace, the devil attempts us to think we're making headway. But we're not actually making headway. And we can put some band-aids, certainly by way of mere resolutions and mere human determination. People who are non-Christians can do the same. Twelve-step programs, etc., etc. They can see certain things uh, by way of putting band-aids on problems. But they cannot please God. They cannot please God because they are not depending upon the Lord. True victory, the victory we as Christians want in our life, comes through looking to Christ and the covenant of grace. I do not. I do want uh, at this point to make it clear that there are times in which the tongue may be used to show a righteous indignation. I don't want to overlook that. Ephesians 4:26 tells us <clears throat> and gives us this. Uh, be ye angry and sin not. Be angry and sin not. Uh, but let not and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. But be be angry and sin not. There is a righteous indignation. We see that the Lord was angry in Mark three five with uh, those who had hardened their hearts when He had healed this this uh, man with a withered hand uh, on the Sabbath. And there was unbelief and hatred expressed, an obstinacy in the hearts of those Jewish leaders for Christ. He was angry at their uh, obstinacy, at their sinful stubbornness and rejection of his grace and his mercy and the power and that which was extended to someone in that condition, weak and helpless on the Lord's day. Likewise, we see the Lord cleansing the, the temple and uh, chasing out the money changers. And, him say, and the word uh, being uh, stated uh, concerning Christ, zeal for thine house has consumed me. 
And so a desire to see again the house of the Lord purged has a place of righteous indignation when there are, as it were, money changers in our midst. And we have a right to be righteously indignant with that type of treatment with the holy ordinances of God. The ordinances of preaching, the ordinances of prayer, of the sacraments, the holy ordinance of a faithful ministry. We have a right to be indignant. Righteously indignant. However, this is quite different from letting someone have it because they've stomped all over us. A righteous anger on our parts, dear ones, does not seek to destroy the other person, but seeks to see repentance with reconciliation as the goal. A righteous anger is not motivated by a selfish pride that has been hurt, but is rather motivated by a holy and merciful God that has been offended. A righteous anger loves what God loves and hates what God hates and is righteously angry with his own sins first. A righteous anger is not out of control, but is in control of both words and actions. Let us not so easily dismiss our anger as righteous indignation without carefully evaluating our motives and actions and consequences. Let us now move from how the tongue may be used to diffuse anger to how it may be used to provoke anger, which is our second main point. And we read in Proverbs 15, 1b, turning back to that passage, Proverbs chapter 15, 1b, but grievous words stir up anger. The second line in Proverbs 15.1 simply affirms what is the natural response of sinful men to utter grievous or harsh words which only tend to fuel the anger of others all the more. In this case, the bomb in a person is ticking. You can hear it. You can see it by way of their anger, their speech. But rather than acting like a bomb squad in dismantling the bomb, we act more like terrorists in pushing the button that sets off the bomb. And then we wonder, what happened? The the hostile anger or bitter words of another who comes at us may not be excused. It is sin, that's true. But our provocation and pushing the right buttons with perhaps even a smile on our face also makes us a party to his further anger. For we may not ourselves yell or shout and scream, but our calculated response to push buttons that provoke the other party are not a soft or gentle answer in such a case. Let's consider once again some of the biblical examples of how the tongue may sinfully provoke others to anger. Think of the words of Saul and how they provoked Jonathan, his son, to a fierce anger. 
in 1 Samuel chapter 20, there you find um, uh, Saul berating David. And he was angry with his own son because his son was defending David. And Jonathan sought to tell his, bro- uh, his father of how David had only defended him, defended Saul, protected Saul, gone out and, and promoted the cause of Saul. And yet Saul was coming at him with his armies to pursue David. And as I said earlier, in response to this, Saul takes up his spear and throws it. Throws it at Jonathan. Again, this particular uh, example, I mean, Jonathan was seeking to defuse the the uh, uh, the uh, fierce anger of Saul in this particular case. But Saul, again, uh, in the same situation, uh, aroused by way of his speech a righteous indignation within uh, Jonathan. And that was sinful on Saul's part. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4, on the part of fathers, and no doubt if it's true of fathers, it's also true of mothers, and if the principle is true of parents, it's, it's true Certainly a moral principle is true for all of us. It says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so it is, again, our responsibility to seek not to to cause people to uh, become more wrathful and angry, but if we can, by way of the words that we utter to diffuse that, to be reasonable with them, to seek to to speak to them in such a way that they will carefully consider what we're saying to them, not pushing the buttons to make the situation more worse, uh, or uh, more explosive, trying to diffuse the situation, disarm uh, the person. You remember the words of Rehoboam. The son of Solomon, he listened to the counsel of his young advisors rather than to the counsel of the elderly sage advisors of his father Solomon and issued not a gentle response, but a very hateful, vindictive response. And as a result, we see that there was, in like manner, a very hateful and and uh, vengeful response from those who heard it. And so that was the result, however, of Rehoboam not coming back to the people uh, listening to uh, those godly advisors um, and elderly advisors. But are we responsible for the further wrath and anger of others even if we should sincerely seek to win them over by our gentle words uh, and they prove to be stiff-necked and obstinate in maintaining their errors in their sinful course. Are we responsible for their response when we have done what we can to reason with them, when we've done what we can to speak to them uh, gentle, soft words? No, for in such cases 
either our very silence or the truth which we proclaim and defend may so incite others that they reveal their hardness of heart and obstinacy of will in closing their ears to the truth and in laying uh, uh, in to us uh, with words and deeds that are filled with hatred and vengeance. Um, just as just as we see uh, with uh, the reaction many times of those in the ministry of Christ, um, not everybody received the word of Christ, though the Lord uh, in his address to people began with invitations of gospel. Where there was unbelief, the Lord then would begin to uh, uh, tell them the consequences of their unbelief and where their unbelief would lead them. And they didn't like that. And they responded again in a very, very hateful uh, way to the words of the Lord who is speaking the truth to them. Well, again, those who do so are responsible for their reaction and their, their responses. So, dear ones, even in seeking to offer a soft answer to those who are angry, we must never sacrifice the truth, but must speak the truth in love for, for others and to others, not in selfish anger and bitterness of spirit, but in love for them, speaking the truth in love. What about those who repeatedly take advantage of our gracious responses to their angry attacks? Repeatedly do so. Again, is there not a time to set a person straight for their own welfare? And I'd say absolutely. There will be times when we must be firm with those who repeatedly offend, obstinately offend, and will not listen nor learn by a gentle answer or passively rebellious, in a passively rebellious state of mind, will not allow uh, uh, us to dissuade them from their sin and their error. But even on those occasions, I submit to you, we do not use our firmness to retaliate, to avenge ourselves, to get even, but rather to help them. That's our motivation, to help them, to show them love and mercy, to show them the consequences of their sin if they continue in the path that they're going because we care for them and we don't want to see them walk that path. Not to avenge ourselves. To edify rather than to destroy. And that is why we must be in control rather than out of control so we do not respond even when being firm. That we don't respond with vengeance but with humility in love for the brethren, for others. How do we practically speaking, prevent our, our own harsh speech and response when we are attacked with arrows from the tongue of another which have hit their target in our own heart. What practical uh, steps can we take to prevent that welling up within our own hearts? Well, this may seem very simplified and uncomplicated, but I think it's necessary sometimes to, to give that type of an approach so that we don't miss the point. Stop, look, and listen. 
Stop, look, and listen. First of all, stop your mouth. Say nothing until the anger within you has finished. The anger you feel erupting, coming up within you until it is subsided, stop. Ask the Lord to give you, in that particular moment, cry out with Him with one of those arrow prayers that shot from your heart to the heart of God. Ask Him to give you a quiet, peaceful heart rather than a warring spirit. Call upon the Lord to use this trial for His glory and for the good of those who are involved. Put your hand over your mouth. For once words have left your mouth, you cannot retrieve them. You can't call them back. They're out there. How many words have we uttered in anger that we have lived to regret? That we've lived to regret. They may be forgiven, but they may, dear ones, never be forgotten because they are so painful to ourselves and to others. God has given us two bars to keep within angry words, our teeth and our lips. Seal them both. Seal them both. Bite your tongue. Count to a hundred, if necessary, before speaking. Take a walk, if necessary, before speaking. Call out to the Lord for His wisdom to be supplied to you before speaking. The dear ones, stop, stop, stop the flow of words from your mouth, from your pen, and from your keyboard. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The second part. First stop, second look. Look in faith to Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, not only to deliver you from the guilt and penalty of sin, but also to deliver you from that corrupt nature that spills forth such vile and hateful words. Again, dear ones, the language that's used, the legal language that is used with regard to our besetting sins, with regard to sin in general, is that we have died with Christ to that sin and to the law. Legally, we are as dead as if we were married and our spouse has died. We are no longer legally bound to that spouse. So likewise, we must appeal and must reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. That's our old spouse, the law, and sin that flows from it. But we have been joined to a new spouse, even the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are now legally bound to him, but not to the old spouse. Look to Christ in faith. Look in faith to Christ who was on the receiving end of many angry words and who did not respond in like manner as we read in 1 Peter 2 verses 21 through 23 look to his example 
for it says, for even here unto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. He committed himself to the Lord, who judges righteously. Furthermore, look to Christ who has not repaid you as Christians. Christ has not repaid you as your sins deserve for all your angry words spoken against him and others. Consider what Christ has forgiven you and your speech and your evil communication before lashing out at others. Consider that you are no more deserving of Christ's mercy than your adversary is deserving of your mercy and pity in that situation. Look inside of yourself and reflect to yourself. Who do I think I am that I do not need this dose of anger for my own sanctification? You see, we need in God's providence to be reviled because that's a test. That's our exam in that particular situation to see how we are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. How will we respond in that situation? We need those tests and examinations. Those quizzes. Those pop quizzes that come up unexpectedly in our life in the school of Christ. And we can say, when we respond properly, I am suffering with Christ. If I am suffering for righteousness and truth, I am suffering with Christ. The third point. Stop, look, thirdly, listen. Listen to the Word of God and the Spirit of God speaking by His Word and seeking within you within your heart, within your soul, within your conscience, seeking to diffuse the bomb rather than to explode the bomb. Listen to the Spirit of God speaking by His Word. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Proverbs 15.1 Listen to the Spirit of God speaking by the Word of God in Proverbs 18.19 A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Listen carefully to the words of the one who is angry in order to see whether there is any truth. Even though he may be sinfully expressing himself. Listen to what he's saying to see if there may be truth in what he is saying, though he may not be speaking the truth in the way he should. But is there any truth in what he is saying? Evaluate. Don't simply dismiss it because it was said in anger. Even if anger, angry and malicious words may make it difficult to hear what is being said because the volume is up so high, Try, as best as you can, 
by way of your gentle approach to get their volume down and listen listen to what is being said and if there is truth in what they have said and if there is sin that you have committed and if you or myself have offended another that we be ready to repent of that particular sin and if we have sin the first thing out of our mouths should be if we hear that we have sinned in some way and we know that we have sinned in some way the first thing out of our mouth should be forgive me that will diffuse the anger that will diffuse the anger forgive me rather than returning poisonous words for poisonous words learn furthermore to pity those who are given to anger rather than being vindictive and hateful learn to pity them pity them Vengeance belongs to God, dear ones. Vengeance belongs to God alone. Pity belongs to us in carefully guarding our own hearts that we do not fall into the same temptation to be angry due to our own pride and thinking we are better than others or more sanctified than others because we held our tongues. There was, it is only due to the grace of God in restraining us that we do not explode in anger when we are reproached and reviled. No need for us to be conceited, boastful, arrogant, or proud. And finally, there was, the issue is ultimately, as we've said, not the tongue of man, but the heart of man. Ultimately, it's not the issue is not the physical organ, the tongue of man, but ultimately the heart of man. For there is where the battle is either won or lost, is in the heart. If our heart has been humbled by the amazing grace and love of Christ, which has so abundantly and freely been poured out upon us, if we know the grace and mercy Christ has poured out upon us, and we are growing in that grace, knowledge of that grace and mercy that has been shed upon us, we will likewise approach our neighbor with the same humility and love and seeking to help him by whatever we say and do. It all begins, dear ones, with your earnest desire to use your tongue to profit others rather than to destroy others. If that is your sincere desire, as it must be, if you call yourself a Christian, you must realize that self-control is not a grace which you earn or deserve any more than the forgiveness of your sins. Self-control is a grace freely bestowed upon you by Christ. Everything you need to be justified and sanctified before the Lord has already been purchased for you by Christ. You do not have to ascend into heaven to ob- obtain it. You do not have to go to the remotest parts of the earth in order to secure it. You do not have to crawl upon your knees up a flight of stairs so that you have bloody knees. You do not have to shed buckets and buckets of tears to obtain the grace of God. 
you simply need to humble yourselves before God recognize that in Christ Jesus all of these benefits are yours legally purchased for you already yours to simply draw upon as if you were withdrawing money from an account at your bank by faith to withdraw that grace as you need it it is yours in Christ it is yours believe it receive it pray for it and practice it for our religion our religion dear ones is indeed worthless and vain without it as we find in James 1.26 and I close with this passage of scripture if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart this man's religion is vain it's futile if there is no attempt to bridle your tongue dear ones no desire to bridle your tongue regardless of what you may do otherwise outwardly your religion is vain may God help us and grant us mercy let us stand in prayer our heavenly father we do humble ourselves before thee even now O God for thou hast wondrously restrained our tongues For, Father, if thou did not restrain our tongue by thy grace, we would utter all types of filth and and cursing and foolishness uh, every second of the day without end, without interruption. And so we do thank thee, our God, for thy divine restraint that thou hast shown. But we do desire, O God, to grow in that grace of self-control, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We do desire, O God, to manifest, O Lord, the grace to be that our speech would be uh, profitable and beneficial to others and would bring Thee joy and delight and glorify Thee. O Lord, we pray that we would not minimize this gift of speech and communication. And that communication, again, can be by word and pen or with the keyboard. We pray, our Lord, that Thou would give to us discernment, wisdom, in the way we use this this wondrous gift that we have. That, Lord, we would not abuse it, that we would not neglect it as a means of grace that can be used for others to comfort and encourage, to rebuke and to correct in love, to restore. We pray, our Father, as well as to use our tongue and our speech to, in thankfulness to Thee, to lift up our voices and sing Thy praises, to discuss, O Lord, and testify of the mercy of God to, uh, as we speak with one another in fellowship and communion. 
We pray, our Father, that we would use our tongues this day, this Lord's Day. Uh, Purge our tongues, even as, Lord, uh, the coals of fire were taken from the altar and and the uh, uh, lips and the tongue of Isaiah were purged. O Lord, purge our own. That, uh, Father, we would uh, be uh, and see, Lord, uh, victory and greater success and using our speech uh, to glorify Thee and to help others. For we ask, Lord, these things through Christ our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.